Hey there, Duke fans. Welcome to episode 386 of the Duke Basketball Report podcast. It is Go to Hell Carolina week. That's right. We have the Tar Heels coming up this weekend, and we can think of no better way to preview them than to bring on a special guest. Uh, before we bring on that guest, I will bring on one of my partners in crime, Sam Klein. Sam, thanks. By the way, I'm Jason Evans. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> Forgot to introduce myself. I'm Jason. He's Sam. Sam, how are you doing today? Uh, good. We don't have Donald again. This is becoming an annoying trend. So I hope that we I hope that we have him live again more often soon. Yes. Yeah. Well, and and as usual, we blame it on USA Soccer. Donald is at the match. We're recording this um, mid afternoon on Wednesday, and uh, Team USA plays a uh, crucial Soccer World Cup qualifying match tonight. Donald's probably already at the stadium right now, so he could not join us. But in his wake, instead of having Donald. We have Brendan Marks, who covers the ACC for The Athletic, joining us. You may recall last year we had Brendan on at this same time of year to give us an in-depth dive on Duke and UNC because, Brendan, even though you cover the ACC, that really means when it comes to basketball, you're covering Duke and UNC, right? (laughs) Yeah, basically, pretty much, especially this year. I mean, sheesh, the, the, the ACC is not having its finest season conference not doing great yeah exactly i'm going to hand it over to sam first we're going to do some general questions about unc then we're going to do some specific player questions and then we're going to dive into duke a little bit as well with you but i'll let sam go first on the general sort of stuff about how carolina's season's going so far so brendan first of all thank you again for for coming back and and doing the show with us i know that over at the athletic you guys have have done some uh, acc podcast coverage so uh, appreciate the 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 overlapping and the double dipping on your part uh to kind of start UNC this season, um, they're 16 and six, they're eight and three in conference. It feels like they, they kind of wasted their biggest opportunities for marquee wins early in the season. They had Kentucky, they had Tennessee, they had Purdue, lost all those. So that there isn't a marquee win on the schedule or, or a marquee win on the, on the schedule, but it doesn't feel like they're bad or anything. So give me a sense of, of how, uh, the team and, and the fan base sort of feel about how the season has gone so far. Yeah, I, I think that there is definitely some frustration about some of those early season games that you mentioned. Um, you know, Purdue is, I think, one of the best teams in the country. So you understand that one. But uh, and, and the Tar Heels were competitive in that. And I think that a lot of fans are really satisfied after that. But in seemingly every big game since then, UNC has has not only lost, but they haven't even showed up. You know, you talk about Tennessee, um, they allowed 21 layups to Tennessee. And a lot of those were coming from, uh, you know, UT's five foot 10 point guard, um, you know, against Kentucky, just totally blown out in Vegas. And I get that there was only a day and a half to prepare because of uh, some late scheduling changes, but Kentucky only had that much preparation time too. And then recently, uh, you know, it was a really big week for North Carolina, maybe two weeks ago, you know, on the road at Miami, at Wake Forest, both opportunities to get quad one wins. And again, just blown out back-to-back double-digit losses um, for the first time since the worst season in modern era, which is the the eight-win record back in 2002. So you look at this team on paper, and there's talent there. Of course there is. Um, And you look at the eight-and-three record in the conference, and you look at some of the ways that they've, you know, been able to assert their will against teams like a Virginia or a Michigan at home. But it hasn't translated to the road, and it hasn't translated against actually good teams yet. And so when you look at UNC right now, you can say, yeah, they're not bad. But until this team has a quadrant run win, and it still doesn't, and it only has so many opportunities for those left, this probably, at least in my eyes, isn't a tournament team. You have to beat good teams to make it into the tournament. So I think that's sort of the conundrum that UNC fans are having because you're accumulating all these wins, which on the surface seems good, 
But then when you take a little bit deeper dive into the strengths of schedule and who those wins are coming against, um, there's still a lot left to be desired. Can we zoom out and talk about Hubert Davis a little bit? He was uh, appointed UNC's head coach last spring after the season when Roy Williams retired. It was, I think from the outside, at least it seemed pretty abrupt. I don't know what it was like inside the program, but uh, my feeling, and you can tell me if I'm wrong here, was that UNC fans were generally like, we're, we're cool with Hubert Davis, you know, short of them doing a, a search where they went outside of the Carolina family, they picked somebody who made a lot of sense for where the program was. Does that match? And, and how, how at all has that sentiment changed, you know, most of the way through Hubert's first season? Yeah, I, I think that you, your representation of his hiring is very fair. I think that absolutely a lot of fans and myself included thought that it was a decent hire. Maybe not a slam dunk hire. Um, you are hiring someone for one of the top three jobs in college basketball who's never been a head coach before at any level. Um, that obviously brings some concern. But in terms of somebody who has a close relationship with the current alumni in the NBA, who understands the way things work internally, who understands the politics of the school, who has had success at the NBA level and the ACC level, um, all of those things translated and were very attractive. And you sort of immediately saw dividends on the recruiting trail. They're able to go out and they get Jalen Washington, who before some knee troubles was a five-star guy. Um, and, and we're able to go and get some pieces that, you know, the staff, at least internally, is very excited about. I think that of late, as UNC has had some of these debilitating losses, a lot of folks have soured on Hubert Davis, and I don't know how fair a lot of that criticism is. Um, I think certainly there are things he could have done better. I think that, you know, you look at some of those games where they got just blown out early. You don't have the adjustments that you would see from a more experienced coach. You don't have, okay, let's break out our zone here for a second. Okay, let's break out a trap. Let's press. Let's do something to try and avoid just continuing down this slope that we ultimately end up going down. And that part of it, I think, has been very frustrating. But you're talking about the same players who forced Roy Williams, by and large, into retirement. This is the same core from last year that, for the first time in Roy Williams' career, did not win an NCAA tournament game. Roy had never lost in the first round up until last year. And the bulk of these players are back. And the ones who left, you're talking about a Dayron Sharp, who was, um, you know, a first-round NBA draft pick, Walker Kessler, who is now starring and starting for the number one team in the country, looks incredible. You lost good players, too. And so, yes, there were additions in the transfer portal, but I think Hubert has gotten a lot of unfair blame for the personnel that he's had and the personnel that in April you're largely inheriting. So um, it's hard to sort of evaluate what he wants to do with the team because he was handicapped by that. So I think, you know, as we see what the roster turnover looks like this spring and in the next couple of seasons, we'll have a better idea of what type of program he wants to build. And, um, you know, I think that'll garner him a little bit longer of a leash than, than some fans might expect right now. You brought up a couple topics that we need to come back to, one of which is what lessons Duke is going to learn from, from this transition that UNC has just gone through. The other of which is we, we do want to get into some of these specific players, but before we get there, you mentioned that it's going to take some time for Hubert to sort of rebuild the program in his image. There have been some clear uh, you know, strategic changes that he's made relative to Roy not as much focus on offensive rebounding, just a, a different kind of setup to the offense. Can you comment a bit on sort of how that transition is going? And I guess part of the problem, as you noted, is that a lot of the core players are still the same from last year. Right. So, you know, I obviously, you know, I'm not telling anybody anything new when I say this, but UNC shoots three-pointers now. Um, <laughs> UNC's big shoot three-pointers now. They don't just live 
you know, 10 feet apart from each other inside of the paint. And, and that obviously is one of the biggest things that Hubert Davis has brought and to be expected, right? I mean, when he was at North Carolina, he set the program record for three-point shooting, was a sharp shooter in the NBA. That's what he's known for. When he was Roy Williams' assistant, his job was taking players with no jump shot and, and building one for them, basically. Um, and so he certainly brought that over. And UNC, I think, right now is a top 15 team nationally in terms of three-point percentage. They're one of the best teams in the ACC in that regard. At the same time, like you mentioned, they, they get away from some of the hallmarks of Carolina basketball under Roy Williams and Bill Guthridge and Dean Smith, which is the offensive rebounding. It's the secondary break. It's pushing the base in transition. Um, and, and defensively, especially, is where you've seen probably the biggest discrepancy. UNC is one of the worst teams defensively in the nation right now in terms of forcing turnovers. Um, and, and it is so glaring to go and see. But if you go to UNC's Kempom page right now, UNC is dead last in the nation right now in non-steal turnover percentage defensively. They just do not take the ball away defensively. And one reason that that to me is such a point of emphasis is the way that North Carolina played historically was their defense was never tremendous. Some years it was better than others, but it was always about creating extra possessions, creating easy chances for offense so that even if not all of your shots were going in, you had so many more shots than your opponent that your percentages would balance out. And now when you're talking about you're not creating as many second chances off offensive reboundings, you're not creating as many second chances in uh, transition, you're not creating those fast break points, you're not creating second chance or fast break opportunities with steals and getting the passing lane and forcing shot clock violations. Now you're talking about having a much more even uh, number of possessions on a per game basis as your opponents. And when you have that and the shooting percentages aren't always there and your defense isn't you know, historically great, you see some of these blowout losses that UNC has had. So um, again, I think these are things that Hubert is still feeling out. I think he's certainly limited by his personnel and, and what he can do in terms of having guys switch, having guys not switch, playing certain drop coverages. Um, but it will, it will take time for UNC to get there. But I think it's pretty clear that some of the changes he wants stylistically are already in place. And those I don't think are going to be going anywhere, even as he continues building the program. Hey, Sam, before you ask your next question, Brendan was just talking about my favorite statistic, field goal attempts. Brendan, I know you don't listen to our podcast all the time. I'm obsessed with field goal attempts. I think it's like one of the most revealing stats about who wins and who loses games. And you're right. Carolina used to dominate in field goal attempts and they don't anymore. All right, Sam, continue. <laughs> I do want to let Jason ask about some of the individual players, but one last one sort of on the macro context for Carolina. One thing we noticed is that they seem to be a remarkably different team at home than they are on the road, particularly in conference play. Uh, at at home, I think they're five and zero, and on the road, they're just three and three. One of those is like a road game at Boston College. I think the other is Georgia Tech, and then uh, and you know one of the um, one of the losses was just last night against Louisville, which uh, was an overtime loss where Louisville was without Malik Williams. Um, oh, overtime the, win. Sam, they, they, oh, they excuse me. Yeah. Excuse yeah. me. An overtime win. So only you know <laughs> that that was like. Uh, you know, a game where maybe they should have been blowing Louisville out rather than um, going to overtime. So uh, what is different about Carolina at home versus on the road? I think you've, you've been in, in the arena in both situations for them. So can you tell that anything is different? Yeah, absolutely. Um, they're undefeated at home and at home they come out and they have the Dean dome and they have the lights and they have the music and they have jump around and they have, you know, friendly, everything is set up for them to succeed at home. And on the road, when it's not, that's when they falter. You know, as soon as things have gotten tough this year, as Armando Baycott said, you know, I, I think pretty honestly, but maybe not, you know, super kindly last night, when things have gotten tough on the road, we've curled up into a ball at times. 
And that's exactly what has happened. And uh, I think part of that is a product of having still young players. You know, this is a team that relies a lot on a lot of young players, a lot of sophomores. Um, it also is a team that, again, has a first-year head coach. And I think that Hubert Davis, as much as his players, he has to learn how to handle a situation when, okay, we're on the road, we're down 20. What do I do? What do I say? He's never been in those situations before. We talk about that with freshmen all the time, and, and they have to learn how to play on the road in those situations. They have to play and learn how to come back from a huge deficit. As a coach, you have to do the same thing. And, um, you know, I actually, I remember this so vividly coming back from UNC's loss at Miami, which was the worst halftime deficit in the last decade. Um, coming back from that, I had a conversation with a nice 80 year old gentleman who had been at UNC in the 50s, had been a fan for 60 or so years. And he said, listen, you know, it, it takes time for those things to build. When Dean Smith was a first year head coach, when Coach K was a first year head coach, when Jim Valvano was a first year head coach, these guys didn't know how to do that stuff either. And it takes time and you have to build to that point. And um, UNC and Hubert Davis, especially, are still in the building phase of all that. So I, I would like to think that they're figuring things out. I think getting that win um, in a very, very hostile environment last night against Louisville, I think that that will pay some dividends. But um, certainly if this team is going to have any hope of making the NCAA tournament and, and doing anything in the postseason, they've got to be able to figure out how to be tough on the road. And um, in, in that respect, I think they hope last night was the start of something. All right, so it's my turn now, and let's talk about the players. And if we're going to talk about the players, we have to start with Armando Baycott, who's clearly the best player on this team. You know, the front court kind of cleared out for him. I mean, you mentioned Dayron Sharp went to the NBA. Walker Kessler transferred. Garrison Brooks also transferred to an SEC school. So you would think, you know, oh, it's Baycott's time to absolutely shine and, um, and dominate. He's been really, really good, no question about it. Guy's a double-double machine. But has he been everything you thought he'd be this year? Um, you know, I think he has. I think he's been, in terms of his on-court presence, at least, let me say, I think he's given UNC just about all that you could ask for. I mean, I think, you know, he's averaging 16 and a half points, 12 and a half rebounds. Um, you know, he's getting about four offensive boards a game. Uh, he's one of the best rebounders. You know, he's a, he's a top five defensive rebounder, a top 35 offensive rebounder nationally. So there are no other real big interior traditional post presences for North Carolina. And so he's sort of had to do it all. And he has, um, you know, I think he's had, you know, 16 or 17 double doubles now at this point had 10 in a row, which is the longest stretch in a row since Billy Cunningham. So uh, in terms of the rebounding, in terms of the efficiency inside, in terms of all the things that he did in flashes the last two years, but maybe not as consistently, he's done that. I don't know how much his game has grown. I don't think that, you know, he, he took a thousand threes every week in the summer and I think he's maybe made one three all season. Um, so that that element hasn't translated yet. He's offering more rim protection than he did in the past, but he is by no means, you know, a defensive stalwart or standout. Um, and, and then in terms of his maturity and or leadership, he's continued getting more and more mature. But coming in as a freshman, he was one of the more immature players on the roster and an incredibly immature five star recruit. And it has taken him time just to get back to sort of the normal maturation of a college junior. And so I think that he as far as what he gives you on a night-to-night -night basis, it is the most consistent thing that UNC has. And it's tremendous, and it has been the reason that UNC's won a lot of games. But in terms of being a leader or being a true three-point threat or, or an all-around big, I don't think that he's at that point yet. He, he might evolve into that if he comes back for a senior season, but just not quite there. But still, he has been, uh, by far, like you said, UNC's best player. So let's, let's move up the line a little bit. He's their big man. The other big is power forward Brady Manick. Um, uh, he's a transfer and he's, he's unlike other power forwards in Carolina history. 
because this is a guy who'd rather be on the perimeter than inside. He's, he's just not much of a rebounding presence. He doesn't, you know, doesn't get the ball in the post very much. Talk to me about uh, his game because Duke fans aren't that familiar with him, even though he's, you know, a somewhat experienced player. He's in his first year in the ACC. He is. And, and, you know, Brady is, you know, by, by virtue of being six foot eight, six foot nine and playing power forward, you know, he, he does end up being UNC's second leading rebounder most nights. I think for the season, he's their second leading rebounder too, about five and a six, 5.6 boards a night. Um, but no, you're, you're totally right. This is a guy who arrived at UNC and had made better than 35% from three in all four of his first college seasons. Right now he's hitting at about 39%. Um, and, and he is, you know, one of the best big men shooters in the country. You know, he is incredibly consistent from deep and especially of late he and Dawson Garcia, who um, is not expected to be available for the game on Saturday. He's still at home dealing with a familial illness. Brady and Dawson sort of oscillated. One would start, one would come off the bench. They'd flip flop. It, it really struggled. It really was a reason for both of their struggles. I think earlier on the season, but Dawson went out with the concussion around the start of the new year. And Brady's been in the starting lineup ever since and has absolutely taken off. He's found so much more comfort, so much more familiarity, um, has really gotten a lot of nice high-low looks with Armando Baycott. So he's continuing to involve. The problem is he's probably going to have to guard Paolo Bancaro. And I was just going to ask about that, yeah. <laughs> that, that is not that uh, something that's going to go well for Brady Manic. Um, Brady Manic, for, for as good a shooter as he is, he, he plays like an old man at the Y. He's physical, he's savvy, he's really smart. He's not an athlete. And so I think in transition, trying to keep up with Paolo um, inside, if Paolo can be more physical, use some of his post moves. If he doesn't settle for mid ranges, Brady's going to have a really tough time defensively. And, and the bigger issue is beyond those two, if either Armando Baycott or Brady Manic gets in foul trouble, all of a sudden UNC's post depth is gone, um, especially with Dawson Garcia not expected to be available. So th those two guys, I think, are as huge as any to this matchup. And um, obviously, there's a lot more players you guys want to ask about. But if UNC doesn't get solid production and especially some semblance of defense from those two, this, this game's over before it gets started. Yeah, and, and let's move to some of those other players. Um, Caleb Love, who was not a good outside shooter last year, has suddenly turned into a guy who's hitting better than 40% from three. And R.J. Davis, who, who played but not, you know, didn't play a ton last year, um, is, is starting a point guard. They're essentially playing two point guards at the same time in – in love and Davis and both those guys are really filling it up from deep it's it's meant that Kerwin Walton who you know sort of surprisingly became a major player for Carolina last year has has taken a, a much smaller role on this year's team talk to me about those backcourt guys and uh, you know I, I guess they've just suddenly become better shooters and it, it's made a big difference for Carolina Absolutely. And, you know, to be, to be frank with you, you mentioned that North Carolina is basically playing two point guards. That's exactly what they're doing. I mean, it is two point guards at the same time. The staff and UNC likes to think of it not quite in those terms, though. They like to think of it as, OK, we do have both these guys who can handle. But when they're on the floor together, a lot of the times R.J. Davis is the point guard and Caleb Love is playing shooting guard. And in high school, when Caleb Love was playing for Jason Tatum's dad in St. Louis, he, he was playing primarily off ball or not even off ball, but he was playing shooting guard. He wasn't facilitating. He wasn't dishing. He wasn't driving. And so, you know, last year, one of his big problems was turning the ball over and he has improved in that respect, still had a really costly one late last night against Louisville, but he's improved in that respect, partly because he's gotten better and partly because he doesn't have the ball in his hands as much anymore. They've given the ball more to RJ Davis, who did a lot more facilitating and playing a lot more true point when he was in high school. But um, certainly no, both of those guys are shooting better than 40% from three. And really the question is, for me is, are we going to see good Caleb Love or bad Caleb Love? Because when he plays well, when he scores 20 plus points, UNC has never lost. In his career, when Caleb Love has 20 points or more, UNC is undefeated. 
Um, and wow. obviously, and obviously two of those, two of his best games were against Duke last year. Oh, and we there's, remember. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's some personal animosity there with him. You know, he grew up a Duke fan, thought he was going to go to Duke, thought he was going to be the guy there. Um, and, and he showed out. So if he does the same thing again, um, I think that he, especially with his quicknesses and athleticism, knowing that Wendell Moore's maybe going to be asked to do some different things. Trevor Keels is still coming back. Jeremy Roach is not the most physically imposing guy. I think there's an opportunity for Caleb Love to be a difference maker in this game, but um, certainly we could also get bad Caleb, which is, you know, six or seven turnovers to two assists. And if that happens, then um, he has, he has a tendency at times to play North Carolina out of games. Look, you already told us uh, Dawson Garcia's, um, you know, uh, not, not really with the team right now. Um, uh, Anthony Harris is no longer playing there. There's been some rumors of some academic problems. I'm not going to get into the rumor mongering, but this team has very, very little depth. So the only other guy I think who's really worth talking about is Leaky Black. Guy's been around forever, and he is a classic glue guy, but doesn't really do anything other than the glue things. I mean, like I was looking, his usage rate is phenomenally low. I mean, basically, he doesn't shoot at all. He doesn't do anything on offense. His whole role is, you know, take the opposing team's best player on, on defense and such. Talk to me about what Leaky Black's going to be doing against Duke on, on Saturday. He, he is probably the most fascinating player in this game to me, which may sound a little crazy because there's a lot of players who are much, much more talented than he is. Um, but what he has been able to do in the last four games has been pretty surprising. Leaky Black is a guy who, over the, before the last four games, had never scored in double digits this season. You know, not, didn't have it. And, and, you know, when I say that, I'm talking about missing dunks, missing layups. You know, teams are completely sagging off him, daring him to shoot. Leaky Black in the past four games, two weeks or so, has started seeing a therapist and uh, basically, you know, as he told us last night, learned that he had anxiety, you know, pretty high functioning anxiety. And the result has been incredible. I mean, since he has started learning how to handle that last night against Louisville, he had 13 points, made three three pointers, um, which I think is the most that he's ever made in the game at North Carolina, had four assists, four rebounds, a steal, no turnovers. I mean, he was sort of the do everything glue guy. And UNC fans have wanted Leaky Black for years to become Theo Pinson Jr. Uh, they wanted him to be a guy who he might not fill up the stat sheet, but he's going to do a little bit of everything. And, and up until the last four games, he had done a lot of things, but that scoring part never came along. Now that that has started to come along, I'm so fascinated to see what Duke does with him defensively, how much latitude they give him offensively to try and you know take some of those long jumpers and threes that he hasn't usually made. Because when he is making those, that's another 10, 15 points that you have to account for. And you haven't had to previously for North Carolina defensively. I expect that he's going to get uh, the window more matchup. And frankly, I wouldn't be surprised if he sees some time on Paolo. Um, he's going to be on AJ Griffin, whoever is the primary perimeter scorer in the game for Duke at any given moment, Leaky Black's going to be in there and he's going to play 35 minutes a game. I am fascinated to see what he sort of ends up being in this game, because I think that he can be an X factor of sorts. If he's making those shots, I think North Carolina probably has a little bit more of a chance if he's not and he's, and he's chucking those and Duke doesn't even have to respect him. Um, then, then it totally changes what North Carolina wants to do offensively. It feels like Leaky Black is, has a career that would look more like a Duke player's career. Like he's got the, the Emil Jefferson or, or Lance Thomas progression going on here, uh, which we just don't see as often in Carolina. Uh, so it's, it's interesting to see the roles reverse. I could see Duke fans, like you were saying, if, if the game goes that way, Duke fans just being, infuriated that, that it was leaky black that that made the difference i guess coming back to the to the game this weekend then um we've talked about uh, a few of the carolina players and sort of how they match up with with different guys 
uh, for Duke. How do you sort of generally see the game going and who do you think are going to be the key players, you know, be they be it Leaky Black or, or somebody else for Carolina? Yeah, you know, I, I think um, obviously Caleb Love. I mean, if Caleb Love plays the way that he did last season against Duke, where he's average, you know, he making 25 points, not turning the ball over at all, making four or five threes. I mean, if he's playing like that, um, I, I think it'd be really interesting to, to me to see who ends up guarding him the majority of the time. Like, does it end up being Wendell Moore? Does it end up being A.J. Griffin? you know, how good to go is Trevor Keels? How much can he handle? I think that, you know, against Notre Dame earlier this week, he, at least to me, did, did not look like he was all the way back. Um, I would not expect him to be all the way, you know, his fullest best potential against UNC on Saturday. I, I think that that's a really interesting matchup to watch with who guards Caleb Love. For, for Duke, I don't think that UNC has anybody who can guard Paolo Bancaro. I really do. I don't think there's a single person. And, and well, frankly, welcome to the club, you know, <laughs> right. <laughs> That's sort of the problem for everybody. But I also don't think that UNC has anybody who can guard Wendell Moore, because I think that you're talking about Caleb Love or RJ Davis being on him. If Wendell Moore's got RJ Davis on him, that's a matchup that Duke's going to go at every single time. You know, RJ is generously listed at six foot. He's, he's probably more like, he's my not. Size. <laughs> he's yeah, not. He's, he's probably more like 510 ish, 511. Um, and he's a good player. He's a pesky defender, but Wendell Moore just has the size and the length and the wingspan and the athletic advantage over him. So, you know, I, I don't know that North Carolina has the defensive chops to hang with Duke on an individual basis. I also don't know if it has the defensive chops to hang with Duke on a team defensive basis. So I, I'm really worried that if some of these shots start falling, especially if UNC gets into foul trouble with uh, Armando Baycott and, and with Brady Manick, you know, Duke fans won't want to see Bates Jones in the game for an extended period of time, but Bates Jones is, is a five foul body. Theo John's a five foul body and, and the, the ability to go to AJ Griffin in a small ball lineup and play Paolo at the five. I think Duke just has a lot more flexibility, a lot more versatility. And I don't know that UNC has the cogs to, to stop Duke. And one of the interesting things is that both of these teams play fairly short benches. So there's a, potential on both sides for foul trouble, creating some weird rotational moves for, for both coaches. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I, we, we talk about Dawson Garcia not being there, Anthony Harris, not being there. I mean, those were two guys who were in UNC's top six to start the season. Um, you know, top, top seven, maybe, but you're talking about basically lopping off the, the first two guys off the bench for North Carolina. So now it has meant more minutes for Puff Johnson, who didn't play in a full year. It has meant more minutes for Kerwin Walton. Um, it has meant more minutes for their freshmen, for DeMarco Dunn and Dontrez Styles. And um, their development has been a, a weird story and a weird journey too. But I, you know, as, as short as Duke's benches, especially given Trevor Keels' injury status, I still think that Duke probably has more dependable depth than North Carolina does, but no, I a hundred percent agree with you, Sam um, foul trouble. I a hundred percent can see being an issue and most likely will be an issue in this game. Let's come back and, and talk about Duke very briefly. I know that uh, you, you spend a lot of time uh, covering Duke and, and writing about them and, and researching them as well. So just very quickly uh, thoughts on how this season has gone relative to your expectations. I know we talked about how that went for Carolina, uh, how do you see, how do you see Duke's progression so far? Yeah, I, you know, coming into the year, I was uh, fully sold on Duke as a national title contender. You know, I, I was not shy about telling folks that I thought that Duke had a chance to send coach K out with the sixth title. And I still believe that to be the case. Um, however, I would say from December to now, I don't think that you look at Duke and go, this is one of the three best teams in the country, which I did at the time. I thought, you know, Gonzaga, Purdue and Duke were, sort of in a different, a different class. And, and now in the time since then, you've seen a lot of other teams out of the mix. 
This is not to say that Duke can't still win a title. I absolutely believe it's still in the mix, but I don't know that the team as a whole is in a better spot now than it was in December. I think that there are individual players who are. I think Mark Williams has absolutely improved as a player. What he did against Gonzaga, um, you know, he's continuing to develop as a shot blocker. I've been really impressed with his movement laterally lately. Um, I think, you know, the fact that he's been able to, to do a little bit more and been more versatile still goes for too many shot blocks, in my opinion. And I think that's something the staff is working on with him. But you look at his development, you look at A.J. Griffin. I mean, this guy's if, if Duke does anything, it's because A.J. Griffin is the X factor. He's at about 65% of what he's capable of right now. And he's still you know, making five threes. And he's one of the only high major players shooting 50% from three. I mean, he's, he's insane. And I actually had a scout who was at the Duke Louisville game who um, I met up with afterwards, who said that he would not be surprised if AJ Griffin ends up being the best pro on this roster, um, especially defensively because of what he's capable of. Um, obviously Paolo's an incredible score, but you know, he can't really guard fives at the next level. I don't know how well he'll be able to guard fours. AJ Griffin, it's a lock right now. And he's so simple to play with. So I think, you know, it's a lot of jumble and, and me rambling to get back to the point of, I think that Duke is still in a position to win a national title. I think it's in the group of about 10 or so teams that you would pick to be in that mix. But I think to get there the next month, they've got to get back to the cohesion they had beginning of the season. That means getting Trevor Keels healthy. That means continuing to integrate AJ Griffin. It means figuring out how you're going to best use Jeremy Roach and Trevor Keels both together and independently if, if those things start to become clear in the next month, I absolutely think that this Duke team has, I mean, there's five first round picks on this team. They're going to be in the, in the mix to win a title. Um, but to me, I think there's still a lot more improvement that can be done. I'm not as concerned as they drop individual games. I'm not concerned if they don't win the ACC regular season. I'm not concerned if they don't win the ACC tournament. It's all about getting to March for this team. That's all that matters is everything they do from now until selection Sunday is about having the capacity to win six straight games. And I think they do, but it's going to take a lot more improvement to be at the point where you feel really comfortable and confident. Uh, hey, so one of our last questions, uh, there's something I've been talking about on the podcast lately that I want to get your opinion of. Mm -hmm. And it's the, what's the best version of Duke? Um, you know, uh, who should be handling the ball most of the time? Because this is a team where sometimes it's Keel, sometimes it's Roach, sometimes it's Moore, sometimes it's Paulo. Uh, you know, do, is the best version of Duke a team where Paulo is the, the, the biggest player on the floor? Or is it, or is it a, a version with Mark Williams uh, also out there? What do you think, you know, if you're, if you're putting together this Duke team in a way that's going to win six games in a row, as you said, how is it put together? Yeah, I, I think that's a great question. I think there have to be two versions. I don't think you win with just one. I don't think you can win if you have one five-man lineup that it's like, all right, crunch time. doesn't matter what the other team looks like. We're going to them. You've got to have two. You've got to have a big one. You've got to have a smaller one because, you know, there's, there's as likely a chance that you're going to get a team that has a true big who compete with Mark Williams as you are going to get a team that can't. And so I think you have to have both those situations there. So, you know, in a bigger lineup, obviously Mark Williams is going to be out there. Paolo is going to be out there. AJ Griffin has to be out there. I don't think that's negotiable. I think he's Duke's second best player. And I think that, you know, at his full strength, like a scout said, I think he has the potential to be the best pro on this roster. It's the backcourt where things get tricky uh, because Jeremy Roach has been sensational lately. And Jeremy Roach has earned the opportunity in my eyes to be, to be the primary ball handler for this team. I think that he has been uh, Wendell Moore, I think we know, and has shown not just this year, but in his previous two seasons, he can be turnover pro. 
that is not going to win a championship. You cannot afford to have those late mistakes. Trevor Keels is an interesting situation because of the injury, but I think right now you would have to finish things off with a lineup of Moore and Keels still over Roach. I still think you go for the upside. You go for the defense there. Duke's defense is what's going to win in the title. There are going to be games where the shots aren't falling. There are going to be games when Paolo goes three for 18. There are going to be games where Wendell Moore has four turnovers. Those games are going to exist. They just are, um, especially in the tournament and, and what we've seen with the physicality from college officials. But the defense can lock down. And, and that's why I think that you have to go with, I don't know that there's a better five-man defensive lineup in college basketball than Mark Williams, Paolo Bancaro, A.J. Griffin, Trevor Kills, and Wendell Moore. Because wow. Wendell, I mean, I, I really don't know that there is because all of those guys with maybe the exception of Paolo, are tremendous individual defenders. I think they're tremendous team defenders. Um, and they're only going to continue to get better over the next month. Now, in a smaller lineup, obviously, you're going to have all three cards. You're going to have AJ as a small ball four, and you're going to have Paolo at the five. I think that one is another thing you need to have in the, in the box. Because um, Mark Williams wasn't going to work against the Virginia Tech, for se. And if you get a team that's built in a similar mold, that's not going to work. Um, so I think having both of those is key. But those are the two lineups I would feel most comfortable with at the end of games because I think that Jeremy Roach can still be exploited a little bit defensively, but um, I absolutely think that he should be the starting point guard. I think that he should have the primary ball handling duties. I think that allowing Trevor Keels to focus on his defense and his spot up shooting um, will hopefully help resurrect some of his three point shot. I think he's being asked was, was before injury being asked to do a little bit too much. And, and that may have been part of the reason that you saw some of his efficiency decline. Well, this has been amazing. Brendan, thanks so much before you go. I'm going to put you on the spot. Give me a prediction. What do you think happens? Duke at UNC this Saturday. Oh boy. I've thought about this a lot. I really have. Um, but at the end of the day, I, I think even though North Carolina has been undefeated at home, I don't think that this is a team that has, has the defensive chops to compete with Duke. So I, I think it's going to be close. I could see this going to overtime. I really could. Um, UNC has been able to have some fight at home, but I think that Duke ultimately is probably going to end up, I don't know what the line is, but it, it's, I would imagine that North Carolina probably ends up losing this game by four or five points. I just don't know that they quite have the defense and um, Duke, if, if it comes down to free throw shooting at the end, maybe things are a little bit closer, but um, I just think that Paolo Bancaro is really going to feast. I think he's going to get whatever he wants basically. And even if Caleb Love has 25 plus points, I think that Wendell Moore and Trevor Keels are going to make his life miserable. There we have it. Brendan Marks of the athletic man. Thank you so much. People. If you don't have a subscription to the athletic, I don't know where you're getting your sports news because they are fabulous. And Brendan's coverage of Duke UNC and the entire ACC is really great. Thanks a lot, man. We appreciate it. Absolutely. Thanks for having me guys. I appreciate it. All right, so we're back. And once again, we want to thank Brendan Marks. He was fabulous, had some really great insight for Sam and I and for all of you. You know, we had a plan here. Uh, our expectation was that we were going to bring Donald in virtually. He had recorded some comments for us, um, analyzing UNC, breaking down some things about them, about their schedule, what they do well, what they don't do well. And the reality is, people, what Brendan Marks just said covered everything that Donald said. So you can pretend like, you know, that Donald's talking, but you were hearing it in Brendan's voice. It, it, it doesn't really, I don't think it works to, to play Donald's comments uh, anymore. And in fact, a lot of the preparation that I had done, <laughs> a lot of the, the deep dive stats that I, that I had prepared for, for the Carolina game 
um, we already covered really with Brendan Marks. So, so Sam, let's just do this. Let's, let's just, let's go to, you know, sort of what's your biggest key to the game? What's the one thing you're looking for that you think Duke needs to accomplish to have a victory against Carolina? There were a couple of things that Brendan Marks mentioned as being sort of key for Carolina that I wanted to re-highlight. One of them is that UNC is one of the best three-point shooting teams in the whole country. And Duke has been great until, uh, you know, some certain games recently, but generally great at running teams off the three-point line and creating bad shots. Against Notre Dame, Duke was excellent at, at limiting good three-point attempts. Some of that, as we said, was, I think, some of the luck of Notre Dame just didn't have the shots falling. But Duke needs to be focused on defense stopping Carolina from, from taking, uh, from taking easy threes, which, in, which includes limiting the passing lanes. I think Duke needs to turn up the, the pressure on, on trying to steal the ball and, and create pressure such that UNC doesn't get those easy shots. The other key for me is the play of Paulo Bancaro, who, as Brendan mentioned, Carolina doesn't really have a, a guy who can, who can match up against Paulo repeatedly and, and throughout the game. I want to see Paulo take better shots in this game. One of the things that has been bringing him down in recent weeks is poor shot selection. We've talked about how he's been taking more of these off balance or mid range shots, not necessarily getting open, just getting open enough for him to release, but not, not taking a good shot. And I find myself when I'm watching this Duke team recently noting more often, that's a bad shot. That's a bad shot. That's a bad shot. I want Paulo Bancaro to take good shots against Carolina. He has the matchup advantage against their bigs. I want to see him exploit that repeatedly. I am looking for Paulo Bancaro to have a much better shooting percentage day against UNC than he's had in recent weeks. So I'll tell you something interesting. I noticed when Carolina played Louisville just, uh, just last night. Uh, a controversial game that uh, included some truly horrendous officiating. <laughs> but Carolina was very willing on defense to, to switch. Like the moment a screen, the moment someone screened for the Louisville point guard, L. Ellis, uh, Carolina immediately would switch and, and had no problem, was perfectly happy to put Brady Manick or, um, or Armando Baycott on L Ellis to guard him one-on-one. And the reality was when they did that L Ellis carved them up. The reason Louisville was in that game, the reason that game went to overtime was because Carolina kept on switching their bigs onto small guards. And those small guards kept on destroying those bigs um, with penetration or shooting three pointers when the bigs would back off too much. I, I don't know why Carolina played it that way, but, but they did. And they were repeatedly burned by it. I'm going to be looking for whether or not Duke tries to take advantage of that to some extent. Uh, does Duke try and, you know, play some screen action to get Wendell Moore, to get Trevor Keels, to get AJ Griffin, to get Paulo Bancaro onto a guy who, who has no business covering someone like that. And, and I think that could be a real key to this game if Duke is able to succeed at that. And then the other thing is I'm going to focus on the rebounding. Uh, Carolina is not a team that typically offensive rebounds. I mean, in the past, yes, but this year they don't get offensive rebounds. Duke needs to keep them off the boards. We need to prevent them from getting offensive rebounds. We need to prevent Armando Baycott, especially he's the only guy in that team who's really going after offensive boards. We can't let him have second chances, but then the other side of it is Carolina is great. I mean, they are really great at getting defensive rebounds. 
I think Duke needs to find a way to have an impact on the defensive boards, our offensive boards, their defensive boards. We need to find a way for Mark Williams, for Theo John, for Paulo Bancaro, AJ Griffin, and Wendell Moore. Those are the guys to me. If those guys are able to grab some offensive rebounds, give Duke second chances, this Carolina team's in real, real trouble. Uh, to me, those are the biggest keys to the game. And then the other thing, of course, is the outside shooting. Carolina has been shooting really well from the perimeter. Duke has struggled. I mean, Duke was terrible, te like less than 20% of their threes against Notre Dame. I'd, I'd like to think that means Duke is due for a good game from the perimeter. If Duke shoots well from the outside, you know, that, that's it. Game's over. Carolina, Carolina will not be able to withstand it if Duke's hitting close to 40% of their threes. There's just no question well, they'll about be that. They're, they're playing in the cavernous and, and notably quiet Dean Dome on Saturday, which is tough for, for shooting three. I, I kid. I'm sure that the UNC <laughs> fans will at least show up to this game. But uh, yes, this is the one they, 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 they may be wine and cheese most of the time. They throw away the wine and cheese. They, they get on their feet and they yell for the Duke game. But that's what we expect. It's, it's Duke, you know. I am very interested at what the whole vibe is in the arena on Saturday after the the Carolina is not going to do anything for coach K blah, blah, blah. What, what actually happens on Saturday uh, when, when Duke enters the building, there will be a lot of booing. There is always a lot of, booing. Oh yeah. But, but exactly the reception that coach K gets, I'm going to be watching for that. <laughs> so that's going to do it for our recap, not recap, sorry, our preview. That's what I meant to say. Our preview of what to expect this weekend, Duke against Carolina, a big, big game. Duke does not have many chances for signature wins in the ACC, a win at Carolina would absolutely be a big-time quadrant one victory that uh, is the kind of thing you need to impress the NCAA tournament committee and convince them that you are worthy of a number one seed, which I think is Duke's goal on this season. We will be back to recap it right after it is over. I want to, again, thanks Brendan Marks from The Athletic for, God, just so much great in-depth information. Sam Klein, thanks for joining me, Jason Evans. Donald Wine, Donald, thanks for sending in your preview stuff, even though we didn't get to use it, man. <laughs> I apologize. For Donald, for Sam, for Brendan, I am Jason, and this is the Duke Band. Play us out and take us home. Go to hell, Carolina, go to hell. Hey, I got to ask you, did you watch, you watched the Louisville game last night, the Carolina Louisville I game? I did. I did. Yes. It was uh, atrocious officiating as has been the case the entirety of this college season. It was unconscionable. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I don't know how the, the, the last, the, the foul on Sydney, what's his name? Curry. Sydney Curry. Right. That, that decided the game. Look, I mean, you can argue they already decided the game when they called the technical that I think was a lot of play acting. But regardless of that, the foul on Sydney, that, that's it's ridiculous. He's in front of Baycott, puts his arm out, and 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 they, I mean, it's just, it's, it was insane. I've, I've never seen a call that bad at that crucial moment in overtime. Yeah, there. I mean, I um, I have a story coming out tomorrow, and I talked to Jay Billis for it. And I got when I got on to interview him, I was like, "Hey, how are you?" And he just like out of the blue launched into this diatribe for like fifteen minutes, just about how awful. That sounds like him. It does sound like him. Um, but he's. I mean, he's got a point. I mean, it's been really, really bad this year at multiple points. Last night was obviously atrocious, but I mean, it's been bad. It's been really bad most of the year. 
um, at least from my vantage point. But last night was, yeah, I agree with you. I mean, I mean, I think there's a, a decent argument to be made that uh, when Baycott like um, was getting up late in the late in regulation, yeah, he tripped looked, a guy. Yeah, clearly, it sort of looked. Well, I, I, I don't know how clear it was. It looked like he was getting up and didn't see the guy at first, but still, like very easy. I mean, for none of those calls to go Louisville's way, if I was Mike Pagis, I would have gotten myself tossed right there. <laughs> okay, I'll get us started. Uh, Sam, are we three? 50, 385, 386? What are we? 86, I think. I'm, I always 386, I think. 386. When you get to 386 podcasts, Brendan, you, you, you can't forget. keep up with how many it is. I don't, know why we, I don't know why we still count, but we do it. I don't, I don't know. God, God bless you guys. That's a lot. That is a <laughs> lot. <laughs>